This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Rob Tombrella is a pastor at Grace Church and the speaker on this message. Take out your Bibles and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. You know, there's this old phrase, and it goes like this. I don't know where it came from, but it's the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. Anybody heard that phrase before? It it basically means that the more familiar you are with something, potentially, the less that you appreciate it. And there's no more familiar story than the Christmas story and therefore maybe no more misunderstood or perhaps unappreciated story at Christmas time. So I'd like to ask the question, maybe you're not asking or maybe I'm not asking, maybe we should be asking and it's this. What is the big deal about Christmas? And I wanna go ahead and answer it as we look at Matthew chapter one and I'd like to answer it this way, that the Christmas story is such a big deal because it offers, hear this, real help to endure great difficulty. There are three parts in chapter one that I'd like us to look at, three elements of the passage that we'll call chapters that I believe answer why it's real help to endure great difficulty. The first chapter we're going to call Scandal, that's in verses 18 and 19. Second chapter we're going to call Promise, which is verse 20 through 23. And then the last chapter is Decision in verse 24 through 25. So will you pray with me and then we'll get started looking at chapter one here together. Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see. We ask God that you would give us ears to hear And we ask, God, that you give us hearts to obey. Lord, help us to make decisions based on faith, empowered by your spirit, looking at your promises and your truth of who you are for us in this season. It's in the great name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. The Christmas story offers real help to endure great, great difficulty. Well, let's look at how that that is, starting with scandal. In verse 18 and 19 of chapter 1. I hope you found it. Chapter 1, first book in the New Testament. We're taking a break from Revelation for just this Sunday. And uh, we're going to look at the birth of Jesus Christ. And here's how verse 18 starts out. It says this. Matthew writing says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And he's going to be very uh, succinct and to the point, and he's gonna bring us right into trauma and right into drama with the next few phrases. He says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So notice all, all phrases bring us right into a problem and a scandal. Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. That's practically married, but not married yet. So in the eyes of all the family, in the eyes of Joseph, in the eyes of Mary, 
they are married, but they're just not married yet. And it also says before they came together to make sure that we know that there was no sexual relations up until this point because they weren't married yet. They were betrothed. They were extremely engaged, you might say, <laughs> and ready for marriage. They're betrothed. They have not come together yet. And the next phrase says, and she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now we've got a problem. There were no pregnancy tests in those days. When, when you started showing, you started showing, and there was, you know, morning sickness and some other things that would give you indication, and the more those things started to indicate something living inside of Mary, the more panic ensued. And so we're pulled right up into trauma. And you thought you had family problems at Christmas. Look what happens in verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So you understand the level of betrothal at this point because it's the only way out at this point is divorce. So there's good as married but not married yet and he resolves to divorce her, note this, quietly. Why does he want to do it quietly? He could, he could do it loud and publicly to make himself look better and to make Mary look as bad as he could make Mary in this moment uh, so that his future looks better while her future looks worse and worse. Uh, but he decides not to do that. He decides in love and in mercy towards Mary, who up to this point he believes has been unfaithful to him. That's how these things happen. He, as far as he remembered, had not been with Mary. And here she is with child. That can only mean one thing, that Mary has been unfaithful to me and I need to divorce her, but to show mercy and kindness to her, I'm gonna do that quietly. And he does that, the scripture says, because he's a just man and he doesn't wanna put her to shame. Now she's going to have shame and he's going to be walking through shame over these next nine months, they're assuming. Uh, but he wants to um, minimize the shame and, and do as much damage control as possible. Now the timing of the Christmas story sparks a crisis. It's not the first time that Jesus comes on the scene and he is unwelcomed, sparking problems and setting off issues in people's hearts and lives. Ironically, the advent of the Prince of Peace for Joseph brings great crisis. Joseph is in a family crisis. How would you feel if you were Joseph? What are your options? What would you do? How would you feel if you were Mary in the story? If you were just to take a step into her situation and all the things that she must be wondering and all the fears that are conjuring up inside of this young couple's hearts. I mean, Joseph is filled with, with the fear of shame, with the fear of failure, with the fear of regret, of making a poor choice and, and, and a bad future. I mean, have you ever felt potentially how Joseph is feeling right now 
where a dream, you know, his dream of this great marriage, of this great woman, of that getting crushed. Anybody dealing with a dream that's just gotten crushed recently? You ever wonder why in the world is this unique difficulty happening to me? I look around, nobody else is going through this particular struggle. Have you ever doubted God's goodness? Because you take one look at your circumstances and it's easy for you to doubt. And you say, why me, God? (laughs) I mean, why this? Why now? How do I explain this? How do I explain this to myself? See, our our temptation year after year is to pretend that the Christmas story can't relate to those kinds of questions. And we, we inadvertently remove those doubts, we remove those difficulties, and we remove those scandals. We remove the scandal of the story. We step farther and farther back from the real truth of what's taking place here in the lives of these young couples, and, and it no longer touches our lives. See, we, we think if we can just kind of take the ugliness out or maybe ignore those parts, it's gonna help us forget about our issues and to forget about the struggles of our lives. Like that medical bill is just gonna go away, that broken relationship, I can just forget about that for just a little bit. You know, that's how we kind of sometimes view Christmas. It's like this uh, two weeks off from reality. And it it doesn't touch us. We can forget about the fear for just a little bit. But the problem with viewing Christmas as an escape is the inevitable crash of reality at the other side of the escape. And thankfully, the Bible never does this. The, The Bible doesn't do what we tend to do. The Bible doesn't try to clean up the difficulty of the circumstances of what Joseph's going through, what Mary's going through. The Bible doesn't try to make the Christmas story a very Brady Christmas. It's more palatable to us, you know, more something that helps us to kind of forget about our issues. The Bible doesn't clean up Mary. Church tradition will. Church tradition will, will make her unapproachable in sinlessness, kind of the girl that you don't ever want to have, be a friend with, you know, because uh, she's just so unapproachable in, in her holiness. The, the Bible doesn't, doesn't talk of Mary like that. Uh, the Bible's not going to clean up the barn and make it smell of poinsettias and chocolate instead of dirt and cow poop. It's a barn. It's not the sparkly poppy thing that, that we get used to at Christmas. Like get rid of the cow trough. That's embarrassing to us to think of the king of kings, you know, in a, in a cow trough. Well, the Bible says that's how he was born. That's the, the humility of the son of God in coming near to us. The Bible doesn't clean up the darkness of the story. The story, make it, let's make it sparkle. You know, like we put you know, lights up on our houses. That's what we do with the Christmas story. We don't want to think about the fact that King Herod, in just a little while, will catch wind of a competing king, even though it's, in, in his mind, kind of fairy tale stuff. But when he catches wind of it, he says, I'm going to slaughter every child in the area two years and under. I mean, that, that doesn't sparkle. That sounds a lot like what's happening in Pakistan and Syria. So frankly, we want a whole lot more Brady 
and a whole lot less Syria. And so we, we do that with the story here. Maybe today you think that God doesn't want anything to do with me because of the choices I've made or because of the scandal that I'm in or that I've been through. And if you think like that, listen, you would relate to a lot of people in this church and you would relate to a lot of people that God used in the Bible like Joseph, just like Joseph. So that's the, the scandal. This is what sets it up in verse 18 through 19. Well, let's look at the promise that Joseph is given right in the middle of his trauma. Verse 20 says, but as he considered these things, and again, interesting timing when he is about to be told what, is, uh, what not to do. As he's considering these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, gets his attention. I know you. I know who you are. I'm an angel of God. Listen, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. The angel speaks directly to what Joseph is struggling with, fear. He's afraid. He's afraid of his future. He's afraid of making a wrong choice. And the angel speaks directly to it. Don't be afraid. Why? He goes on. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's very new to Joseph. That's very new to the story up until this point. Verse 21 says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now, the most common thing maybe that the angel says to Joseph right now is that not only is it going to be a son, but you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus was a common name to a lot of people in those days. As common as the name Joshua would be in our day. Many people name their kids Joshua. I have a nephew named Joshua. Joshua means the Lord saves. It's this imagery that people would name their children year after year of Yahweh, the great God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, delivering his people in miraculous, huge ways. It means the Lord saves. Put your faith in Yahweh who delivers. And people at this time were looking forward to a Messiah who would actually be like Joshua was. If you remember the story of Joshua, Joshua came in with a sword and just wiped out the Philistines. And so the people of God in this day are looking forward to the same kind of Joshua the same kind of deliverer, somebody who's just going to come in, wipe out the Romans, free the Jewish people, and, and give them a political standing like they currently don't have. And so Joshua wouldn't be that, that odd of a name to name your child. It means the Lord saves. But, but what is amazing, as Joseph's hearing this, is what he's going to save his people from. It's not a political enemy, it's not a person. It's not an external thing out there only. It's something going on in here. It's something going on in Joseph's own heart. It's something going on in Mary's own heart. 
It's something going on in every person in humanity's heart. He says he, this Joshua is going to save his people from their sins. Now, if, if you're new to the concept of sin, you're new to the Bible, sins simply and profoundly are any thought or action that breaks God's holy law and separates us from God. It's things that you do and it's things that you don't do all the time. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That because we sin and because we're born into sin, we're separated from God. We, we can't be in relationship with God because of our sins. So it's, it's huge that the angel says this child that's going to be born miraculously in your betrothed girlfriend is going to save all of humanity from something so big. Now for that to be true, for what the angel to be saying to be true, it has to mean at least three things because these are three ways that we have to be saved from our sins if we're going to be saved from our sins at all. The first way is from the penalty of sin. This is the punishment for things that we've done or failed to do. In other words, even if we were sinless up until, right, from right now for the rest of our lives, we've still committed sins right up until this very moment, like right now. Like our whole lives deserve penalty and punishment. So we've got to at least be saved from that aspect of sin. Because if we're saved from some other aspect, but we're not saved from the penalty of sins, we're not saved from our sins. The second way is from the power of sin. And that's from the bondage of choosing only evil all the time. Like only thinking selfishly about how it's gonna affect us and what's in it for me all the time. Like we're always tuned into that frequency, what's in it for me. That's the bondage of sin, that's the power of sin, and that's gotta be broken. So if we're saved from the penalty, but we're not saved from the bondage and the power of sin, we're not saved from our sins. And the last one is the presence of sin. From, from the very evil or unholy desires that spark our actions, that sparks the things that we do. All those desires have to be eradicated from us to be in total and perfect relationship with God. If one of those things is removed from us, but the other two aren't, we're not saved from our sins. So it's very curious that the angel tells Joseph, this Jesus is going to save like that. Well, the next question is, how in the world can that be? How, how, how is that possible? Well, look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here's what Matthew is saying. The promise of Jesus as the savior of their sins can only take place as a fulfillment of this 700 year old prophecy to the prophet Isaiah that shows up in Isaiah chapter seven, that you shall call this Messiah Emmanuel, very unique word for God, which means God with us. Now, what in the world are we getting into here when we're talking about God being with us? 
Well, I have a verse up here, up on the screen from John chapter one, and it, it goes like this. It's the very beginning of the way that John starts off his gospel, a little bit unlike the way Matthew starts off his gospel. John goes straight to the cosmic reality of the deity of Jesus, like this. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then he goes on to talk about how all things are created through this eternal Son, the eternal Son of God, who always was. There was no starting point for the Son of God. The Son of God always existed in triune love with the Father and with the Spirit. And then in verse 14 of the same chapter, John gives a very shocking statement. He says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the word flesh is pretty profound because it's almost a crude way to describe human nature in its totality. And it's the New Testament's favorite word when we're talking about God becoming man. It's flesh. The word became flesh. Body, soul, will, and emotions all wrapped up in that word flesh. In 1 John 4, 2, Jesus is coming in the flesh. Romans 8, 3, he is sent in the flesh. 1 Peter 4, 1, he suffered in the flesh. 1 Peter 3, 18, he died in the flesh. And what does that mean for him to be in the flesh? Well, church history describes this as the incarnation. If you've never heard that word before, It's a very mysterious, profound word that basically means the joining of two distinct natures in one undivided person. That's a mouthful. It'll make your head explode if you think about it too long. It's the joining of two distinct natures without the emptying of either one. It's not 60-40 split. It's not an 80-20 thing. It's 100%, 100% joining of two natures into one undivided person. And it's a distinctly Christian understanding of God. You, you wonder what makes Christianity different from all the other religions out there? Well, a lot of things, but this is right up at the top of the list. The virgin birth, right up there. You can't take this out of the story at all. It's deeply mysterious, it's amazing, and when you really start to to stop and think about it, it causes your heart to burst with wonder and worship. Now on this truth, the pendulums tend to swing throughout church history, either going too much into humanity or too much into thinking of uh, him not being human but being more more God. Here's, Here's a couple of the dangers of the pendulum swings. Number one, danger number one, is to consider Jesus fully God, but almost human. Anybody see that, that canceled Fox Network show back in the spring called Almost Human? Anybody see that? I never saw it, I was just curious. Uh, it got canceled because it was unrelatable. I just find it ironic because, you know, th- th- if that was true of Jesus, this would be unrelatable. He would be unrelatable as well. Hollywood is fascinated with the idea of of somebody that is powerful, but almost human. You know, just not quite human, not quite us, 
but very close to us. And if we're not careful, we can empty out the humanity of who Jesus is in the Christmas story and uh, out of an effort to try to kind of preserve his holiness. Now, sometimes this shows up in, in Christmas songs that we love, and I'm not trying to, to dog on Christmas songs, man. They, I love this song, but take, for instance, the this, this song, uh, Away in a Manger. The cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Anybody have a baby like that? Anybody ever seen? <laughs> and like, it's, it's okay for the cattle to low when they're hungry, but not Jesus. He can't communicate through crying. So, you know, maybe he was just trying to find something that rhymes with wakes. I don't know. Um, but sometimes in an effort to preserve his holiness, we remove his humanity and the wonder that the incarnation is. Sam Storms writes it like this. He who breathed the breath of life into the first man is now himself a man breathing his first breath. He goes on, the creator of oceans and rivers floats in the womb of his mother. Omniscient deity counting his toes. And if you can handle it, Mary played patty cake with the Lord of Lords or some Jewish equivalent. One writer says, it's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation. Clean the manure from around the manger, wipe the sweat out of his eyes, keep him merely divine, and keep him distant, packaged, and predictable. But let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the mire and muck of our world. For only if we let him in can he pull us out. See, the almost human God can't fully substitute for our sins because we are fully human, nor can he fully sympathize with our human condition and weaknesses. Not truly. He can't sympathize with us. So that's one danger. The other danger is to let the pendulum swing the opposite way. So with this, Jesus is fully human, but only almost God. He remains in a manger. He remains meek and mild. He remains the, the image of the, the Savior on a donkey riding into Jerusalem, but not the one coming from heaven on a white horse in victory and triumph. And again, the Bible won't let us do this with Jesus. The same John who wrote, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh, finds himself on an island, and he gets this vision of the one who was in the manger. And we're going to put it up here as well. This was in Revelation 1, 12 through 18. One revelation, and this is the revelation that he sees he says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands 
one like a son of man. That's a reference to Daniel. The book of Daniel is this huge cosmic portrayal of the son of God in all his glory. He goes on, he says, the son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. That's priestly, kingly imagery, visual. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. What do you think that's an imagery of? Snow, purity, light, no darkness, no shadow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. He sees all. He sees perfectly. He sees every single situation in our lives. He hinted at this. Remember, he says, the very hair of your head are numbered. That doesn't give me a lot of comfort because I have no hair. (laughs) But Jesus would say things like that. He says, I know everything about you. I know the middle name of every person in your life. I know how many hairs are on your head. And I see perfectly your struggle, your challenge, everything that's going on in your lives. Eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like burnished bronze. In other words, nobody can resist this king when he stands to rule in power. Refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. It's like the most amazing hurricane and typhoon that you could ever imagine, you know, amplified a thousand times. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. In other words, it, it penetrates and it pierces with its truth and accuracy. And his face, get this, was like the sun shining in full strength. When John turns around and he hears the voice, What he sees, the best of his ability is, it's like staring at the sun in its fullest strength. You can barely open up your eyes and it's just blinding in its glory. It's like that, he said. But not quite like that, but like that. And then it goes on to say, we've got the next slide here. He says, real honestly here, when I saw him, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. It's exactly what Joseph hears from the angel. It's appropriate for him to be afraid. Jesus says, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the culmination of the Christmas story. I was born in a manger. I was born to live the life you could never live and I died. I was born specifically to die. I came on a rescue mission of humanity that started by lowering myself to be born among the cattle to rescue sinful people from their plight and from their despair. And I did that. I died and behold, 
I'm alive forever, never to do that again. And he says, I have the keys of death and Hades. That means he's, you guys know what the keys are. Keys mean authority and power. Just ask any 16-year-old when they get their keys. They got authority. They got something to do now. He says, I have authority over death. I have authority over death because I conquered death. Yes. Death has, has, it's nothing to me now. And it should be nothing to us because we're in Christ, the one who has conquered death. See, all of us are going to die, but we need not fear death because he says, fear not, I died. I experienced death. And behold, I am alive forevermore and I've conquered it all. The Son of God promises right here that he was born in a manger, he was crucified, he was put in a tomb, but he's now alive with authority and power. So let me ask you this. Earlier I mentioned that the Christmas story offers real help, real help to endure great difficulty. Well, how is that? If, if you'll go with me one last slide, we're going to pretty much close with this one right here. How is that? How can this story offer me really true help? You're like, man, I got a transmission issue. That's practical. How is this story going to help me? Well, Hebrews 4 says it like this. Summarizes the, the Christmas hope right here. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Note those last phrase, that we may receive mercy. You think I just need a new transmission. What you, what you need and what I need is mercy. And what we need is grace to help in time of need. How many of you, if you were just to be honest, have, you're in a time of, you're in a time of need. Can I just see your hands? If you just, just be honest, right here in front of, we're just one big happy family here. How many of you are going through, you got a time of need? Okay, the rest of you, you liars, can you all raise your hand here? <laughs> thank you, thank, thank you very much. Certainly, there's, there's some of us are going through some specific struggles in a specific time of need. And if we just take a step back, you know, real honestly, we're all going through something, aren't we? This verse says, there's mercy enough for any time of need. You and I are going to experience times of need a hundred times the rest of this day. Sometimes we'll be aware of it, sometimes we won't. Sometimes those needs scream at us, and sometimes those needs are really quiet and whisper at us. But we all need mercy. We all need grace. And the almost human God is unable to sympathize with those weaknesses. He, he can't because he wasn't tempted in every respect as we are. That's what the almost human God can't do. And the almost God can't pass through the heavens and give us mercy and grace to help in times of need. 
Do you see the problem with those two false ideas of Jesus? But because Jesus is fully God and fully man, he both intimately understands us as God with us, and he's able to help us as the one who saves. And that brings us all to decision. Look at verse 24. Joseph hears all these promises, and we've heard far more, haven't we? I mean, Joseph's heard as much as his brain can conceive of up until this point. And now the question becomes for Joseph, what will he do with these promises? And he's got to decide whether or not he's going to walk in faith, in belief, and in trust or not. And verse 24 says, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called him Jesus. Joseph is given the promise, don't be afraid. I'm doing things in your life that it's beyond your full knowing. Trust me. Walk in this. Be obedient to me. Be faithful. Endure. Endure the shame. Endure the questions. Endure the fear. Endure the tension. Endure the challenge. Endure it. Trust me. Walk in this. I mean, Joseph has to take up his cross and walk by faith in verse 24. He's got to decide to do that. And none of us have Joseph's unique burdens, but Joseph did not have your unique burdens. All of us have fears. All of us have doubts. For some, it's health-related. For others, it's job-related. Others, it's relationship issues, difficult situation, particularly at Christmas time. Some of us, man, we just want to get past Christmas. Can we just get past this? <laughs> For others, it's a struggle with a particular sin. For others, you experience a suffering. But we're all the same. We don't have to ask too many questions before we open up and say, you know what? If I'm honest, I'm a person who has need, and I'm in a time of need, and I'm in a time where I need God's mercy and his grace. This Christmas, will we believe that God is loving enough to sympathize with our weaknesses, like Joseph? And will we believe that God is powerful enough to help us when we communicate that need to him and as we communicate and share those needs with one another. Here's how we're going to close, if you don't mind standing. We're going to close our time together today by, by singing about the incarnation. Jeff's going to come up and lead us. And, and while we're singing, uh, the prayer team is going to come up uh, during this song. And I and, uh, just want to encourage you to Sing these truths to the Lord. Confess, share what your specific burden is with the Lord. 
And then after we sing together, if you have a specific burden, a specific need that you would like prayer for, it could be big, it could be small, it could be this year-long struggle, it could be today. Don't miss an opportunity to receive mercy and find grace to help from somebody up here uh, to pray with you. We, we want to do that. We want to take a moment and receive God's mercy and receive God's grace. And if you're not coming up to pray at the close of the song, you're dismissed and we've got refreshments in the back as well. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org. Thank you.